With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I've always believed as a coach that if you don't teach your players how to handle situations the right way, it doesn't happen in a game as you expect, really that's on you as a coach. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today, situational awareness in all the different phases of the game. And joining me to discuss that is the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Penn, Coach Dan Swanstrom. Dan, it's great to have you here today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. Dan, I came across a clinic you put together for Lawrence First in Goal, and I will link that in the show notes. And the clinic was about handling all the different situations of the game. We're going to get into talking about that and how you put that together and how that really has served as a tool to improve your team's football IQ. Before we get into that, I want to go a little bit into your background as a coach and start off with, from the very beginning, what was it that drove you to be a football coach? Yeah, I mean, I, I from the, the day I can remember, um, I've always been in, in love with the sport and in love with the game and certainly growing up in Houston and um, being surrounded by, you know, amazing high school football programs, you know, the college football, you know, at the University of Texas, you know, A&M and a million other schools. Now that compete in the state of Texas made made Saturdays awesome. I went to probably a hundred rice games growing up on Saturdays to you know following the Oilers on Sunday. So I, I grew up in a great uh, football area. Played at Stratford High School in Houston, and the energy and excitement for high school football there growing up just you, know, you really you know dreamed of the day that you got to play at that high school and play varsity stadium and to, to get to play quarterback there was. Just the energy around it, the work, you know, working with the team, you know, all those great aspects of, of teamwork and you know, all that stuff I loved. And I'll be very honest with you, pretty intense young man at times, you know, struggled with controlling my temper and keeping myself and level headed. And, uh, you know, I think the sport of football really gave me an opportunity to, to grow, to develop, to get control of my emotions. It really helped me develop into a much better person. So I've always been grateful to the the high school coaches that helped me through that process to going to college and, and playing at Rhodes College and, and playing for Joe White and, you know, playing for somebody who just has that undeniable belief in you and your ability and giving you an opportunity to succeed on the field and helping you meet your potential as an athlete and doing what you're coached to do. And all those experiences wrapped together 
just led me to never wanting to leave the game. You know, I could say that honestly. I just never wanted to leave the game. And, you know, I got to play professionally in Europe for a club in Germany for a year. And then the next logical path to be around the game of football when you can't play it anymore is to, to dive right into coaching. When you look at those early years of being a coach and making that transition from playing to coaching, who were some of the mentors and I guess maybe some of those key things that you've taken now as a coach that have become part of who you are in the profession? I think for me, uh, I couldn't have been more fortunate to to be coached, you know, by Joe White when I was playing at Rhodes. I got a GA job at the University of Redlands and worked for Mike Maynard, who's one of the winningest coach, maybe the all-time winningest coach in California. I'd have to check on it, but he he ran a really detailed, organized, hardworking football program. You know, he really taught me the work ethic and how to compete in recruiting. It was a really tough two years but a very valuable two years to be a graduate assistant under him. You know, really the bulk of my education, the bulk of getting my master's degree in coaching was at Johns Hopkins with Jim Margraff, who's the winningest coach in Maryland history and was an absolute tremendous football coach of blending intelligence, organization, roster management, team management, individual management, and just was just always one step ahead in the coaching world and loved coaching. You know, what a pleasure it was to be around him for six years and just had absolute tremendous success there. You know, that was just a, an unbelievable time in my life to be a 23 year old coach at Johns Hopkins under Jim Margraff and, you know, get to be an offensive coordinator and be the first person to ever call play under him. That's not named Jim Margraff at 24 years old, you know, so like, there's, you know, there's a lot of belief and faith in you as a coach, you know, like that, that was awesome. And then I get hired at the University of Pennsylvania by Al Bagnoli. Al's success speaks for itself. And um, so then I got to work with Al and someone I had a tremendous respect for and got to learn how he ran and operated, you know, such a winning football program and got to spend time with him. And then, you know, then he kind of moved on and, and spent some time with Ray Piori and uh, won two Ivy League championships with him and learned from him first two years and his 30-plus years of experience in the Ivy League and was part of those Al Bagnoli years of success and his you know tremendous work ethic in recruiting, just his ability to, to, to be around people and, and have just a really good way of communication with, with individuals. And then um, and I got the opportunity to be a head coach. But I, I just look at it as like, man, what a – you couldn't have picked a better run of just coaches who had tremendous success and really, really good men, really good family men, and just do, they all do a lot of right things. And to learn from all of them before I got my first head coaching job was just a, it's a master's, it's a PhD, and, you know, you just sit back, keep your mouth shut, and take a lot of notes. Well, for sure, and some great influences there, and obviously, people who have impacted how you teach the game as well, which leads us to um, talking a little bit about the topic today, which is teaching all the different things that you know, might only come up once during a season, but that one time could make a huge difference for your team. And, you know, you shared this with uh, the audience at Lawrence First and Goal uh, a year ago 
but as I, I told you, I thought it was just a tremendous job in, in putting something together that can really raise a team's football IQ. And you mentioned as you were talking about some of, of your mentors from the past, that word intelligence, right? Football intelligence, it can't be assumed. We have to teach all the different aspects of the game, and there's so many of them. And I think you put together over 30 of these situations that you went through and definitely want to touch on some of them today. But for you, what was the, I guess, the reason uh, you put that together? I'm sure it wasn't just to share it in a clinic. Um, I can tell that's something that you use with the team. But when did this come about and what was the reason for it? First, I think the story for the genesis of the clinic talk really starts with uh, my junior year at Rhodes College. We had, we had a good football team very competitive and we had a chance to win a conference which at Rhodes would be a very big deal right. and we lost it to Paul I mean you just you couldn't make it up the way we lost you know I was the quarterback then we threw a touchdown I can't remember the exact time but it's maybe 23 or 21 seconds left on the clock and our receiver catches it in the end zone and we take the lead by a point he throws the ball 15 yards in the air, maybe higher in celebration. And it's just pure excitement. You know, it's just not, you're not trying to be a jerk about the whole thing. He's not trying to show, but, you know, we think we just won the football game and he throws it up. We get a penalty. We go for two, don't get it. So we're still up a point. Kick off the ball. They catch it. They return it. We tackle them. But at this point, you know, we're sitting at 16 seconds, maybe 15 seconds. I mean, realistically, three plays at best. They drop back, run around, and they throw They throw a Hail Mary. They catch it. We tackle them. They go up. They spike it. And with the extra 15 yards from the return, the Hail Mary, they're in field goal range, and they kick it on the last play of the game and win the game. And then later in the season, our other conference loss, uh, we scored. It's even hard to talk about still. We scored a touchdown late, same situation. We actually stopped them. We're semi-backed up, like 25-30. It's end-of-the-game punt situation. You know, maybe 45, 40 seconds left in the game. We go to punt it. The punter takes normal steps. The punt gets blocked. Um, they fall on it. Now they run a couple plays and end up scoring with 12 or 13 seconds left. And then uh, they, drop the, uh, they drop the snap. We have an all-out rush coming off the side. The holder breaks contain and runs it in for two points. And uh, that's basically how we didn't win the conference championship were those two losses right there. And so you're, you're sitting there as a junior in, in college watching a lot that you've worked for and you did things well enough as a quarterback and offensively and defensively to win these games, but you ended up losing, right? And when I got to Hopkins, Jim Margraff had this list of special situations just on a piece of paper that was just kind of in this coach's binder that he would hand out at the beginning of the year. And we would cover them and we would talk about them. And that's really where it started from. I think those two losses in the sheet of special situations. Now the special situations that he had when I got there in 2008 was shorter. Maybe it was like 15 or 17. And then we took the sheet. And at that staff at Hopkins, we continually just started adding to it. And anything that came up, we added to it. and We put the notes in where we saw it. So we started adding all the notes to it. That's really how the process of this whole thing started. Yeah, I love it. And, and it's, it's always been 
interesting to me to be able to find those situations as video became easier, digital video and, you know, our huddle systems and stuff, being able to teach players all those different things that can affect the game and things that rarely come up. But you've also looked at some of these things and um, put some procedures in place, some things that do come up a little bit more. For example, I loved this one. Uh, You had uh, what you call a mayday call for two men in motion. And, and, you know, when I heard you talking about that, I was like, you know what, that's that's brilliant because we sit there, more than one guy will see it, but we actually don't have any simple way of communicating that so that we stop, get set, and move. You know, I've done it before where, hey, if you see somebody move, then you're going to have to set, fir- set first, and we teach them that, but why not have a call? And as you pointed out in, in this part of your clinic, teach that to everybody. So I love that. If you would, I guess, go go through that little situation and the procedure you guys have put together that you've called Mayday. Yeah, I guess the biggest thing for me is if you're motioning on offense, one of the biggest things that's a deterrent of motioning somebody is procedural penalties, right? There's nothing more frustrating um, as an offensive coach is to have five-yard procedural penalties or more even more frustrating is how many times a year um, do you throw a touchdown, run a touchdown, and then you have two men in motion and, and the play gets called back. So, you know, uh, I just thought as an offense, but even more so, you know, when I was the head coach at Ithaca, I taught the whole program this and team meetings because I wanted the whole program to be able to yell mayday if need be. But basically the idea is if there's two men in motion, whoever is a part of our program can yell mayday. And it's going to get everybody set for a second, and then we'll snap the ball legally. It's really simple. You know, it's just a mechanism to make sure that we just don't have two-minute motion. Yeah, I love it. And kind of going through your list here, really love this idea too. And it's a a one-word thing, the one-word short yardage play. Talk to us about that one. Yeah, it's more of just trying to steal a touchdown. I, I think people don't understand how hard it is to score in the tight red or even on the goal line and to run the ball in, you know, teams are very good at at defending the run. There's a lot less room. It's just hard to run the ball in and these teams don't want you to run the ball in. And so before, you know, the idea was before you can get teams to make substitutions and get anchored into these great goal line defenses where you're going to have an unblocked guy that your tailback's going to have to run through. Let's keep them in a base look, a base defense, and see if we can just punch this thing in before they can get set into a goal line into, you know, whatever it may be um, defensively, whether you're getting bare looks or 6-2 looks. Let's see if we can just steal that touchdown without having getting, having to get into our goal line short yardage or having them get into their goal line at short yardage. Or the other, there's another part to this too. That, that one's the short yardage, but having the one word, you know, quick tempo play after big plays too, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a different, that's a different thing, but, you know, certainly. Yeah, definitely. About it, a little bit. It, on the other side of the ball, you know, when you were the head coach at Ithaca, did you have your defensive guys put things in place so that if, if somebody tried to do that to you, uh, that one word or, or hustle after you know, a, a big play or, you know, the short yardage goal line situation. Did you guys work any procedures out to handle those kinds of things on defense? Yes. So we would go through these situations in team meetings and we would go through a chunk of them each day. 
So whether you pull up one to three, depending on how fast you can get them taught. And then I would take a period of, uh, of practice time, you know, three to five minutes. And I'd break up our team periods to uh, basically just a built-in water break. And then I would go through these situations at practice. And then on Fridays, um, I would rotate these different situations to our Friday practice. But we would go through that process with the offense and the defense team together. And so, you know, whatever our defensive coaches were comfortable with, like our defensive coordinator last year, is going to be a lot more comfortable, you know, hitting somebody with a zero pressure in that situation. So that was kind of our mechanism last year. Yeah, I, I think there's, when you look at just the procedural things, those are opportunities are hidden all over the place. You just need to search for them. I know when I was at Baldwin Wallace, we looked at situations like putting in when you might have in a, a heavier group, let's say it's 21 or 22 for a short yardage play in the open field and the other team subbing in, you know, extra big guys to be able to jump into something just like by a, th- a three by one spread and run something simple like stick that's going to, you know, pick up on first down five, six yards, maybe more. And they don't necessarily have the people in the game to do anything but play, you know, standard coverage there, right? Because they've subbed in big people. You didn't make a change. They're stuck with those guys there if you could hustle to the ball and do things like that. So I I love looking at and looking for those kinds of opportunities. And and definitely, like you said, that one word short yardage presents some things there. I know one that has application on both sides of the ball you call free lunch. And it's, it's basically the situation where one team is trying to get a possession back by letting the other team score. And it's something, I think it was uh, the, I don't know if it was, I think it was a 20 season. It happened twice in a weekend. Once on a Saturday, I want to say it was Indiana. And now I can't recall who they were playing. And then the other one was, I believe, the Lions and the Falcons, where at the end of the game you had both of those situations. And uh, you really have to be alert uh, at the end of the game for those kinds of things. And I know I had... Coach Rob Ash on to talk about, you know, how he handles those kinds of things and teaches those situations. But talk to us about your approach to free lunch and what you call no free lunch. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically the situation at the end of a game where on either side of the ball, you either you really it comes down to you, you you won the game. The only thing you're trying to defeat at this point is the clock and getting your team to understand that you're competing against the clock. So if you're, if you're no free lunch on offense, you know, basically the only way the other team can win the game at this point is for you to score a touchdown and give them the ball back. And so you got to make your team aware of that. And, uh, you know, I think uh, you see this every year, you know, you brought up the Falcons game, the one that was eye opening to me was the coastal Carolina game where coastal Carolina grabbed the ball carry and threw them into the end zone got the ball back, came on one the game later. You know, the Falcons guy, um, the running back was in a no free lunch situation and then stumbled into the end zone and ended up losing the game. And so it comes up a ton. So, you know, we want to coach that offensively. We want the program um, and the players to understand a no free lunch situation that we are now playing the clock and not the defense. And simply put, it's a, it's a base play. Um, we have two hands on the football, but we also don't want, anybody to put our hands on us so we want to go down 
uh, before the defense can put our hands on us because of what happened in that Coastal Carolina game. We want to make mm-hmm. sure that that doesn't happen to us. And then understanding on the defensive side that the only chance we have to win this game is to give up a touchdown and to understand that we do need to give up a touchdown here. So whatever we need to do to get the ball back, you know, whether you need to drag that guy into the end zone, make it happen. But it's just an understanding that what we're competing against is the clock and, and less about the opponent at that point. Looking at other things kind of that affect the timing and, and one of them you point out on the defensive side of the ball is the late sub. We see it happen all the time now, right? The, the guy running into the game late. What's your approach to that situation? Yeah, we did it a fair amount this past year, and our defensive coaches were just alert. We had we had pretty good linebackers, and so we were willing to play a bunch of guys. And so, you know, our sideline was alert. We were alert to late substitutions, and on late substitutions, we we substituted with them. You know, nothing more. We didn't really even inform the players too much, so the players would just run in, run out, and do their substitution. But yeah, we we were pretty in tune with that. And yeah, there's actually probably a couple timeouts from this past year because of that, and certainly a lot of yelling from the stands at referees and people not understanding the rules of what we were doing. As officials <laughs> stood over the ball and gave it that extra side, and we didn't really like coach the players on it. We're not trying to completely like just take over the football game but we're just simply subbing with them on the defensive side of the ball you also coach up the hold or pass interference situation talk to us about about the approach there both to teaching that and then making sure that you do get some reps at it yeah so that one's really rare that's going to come up did happen in the sec a couple years ago i think it was florida but but basically if you go with an aggressive pass interference with with time on the clock the theory is that you basically eliminate two shots at the end zone and you're taking it down to one shot, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you aggressively pass interfere in the, you know, the tight red zone, I mean, sorry, in the goal line, you know, let's say there's eight seconds left and they're going to throw the ball. They don't have timeouts left. They're going to throw the football and you aggressively pass interfere and basically eliminate their chance of completing that play you've now just taken your shots at defending from two to one, even though you're going to get the ball put at the, you know, the one or the two yard line up the, you know, the goal line, whether it's called, you know, whether it's called defensive holding or pass interference, you know, depending on what they call because of your aggressive pass interference stance. But the idea is to take the shot at the end zone from two to one. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. This one, some, sometimes, you know, we get pretty aggressive. So I've, I've had people get pretty aggressive with me on this one. Now, it has not come up for us, but it has been something that we've seen. And like I said, the idea is instead of letting them run two plays to score, you're eliminating one play and letting them, you know, then you're running one play. Yeah, if, if, if you want to learn, you know, some of those situations that people maximize time, just go watch Bill Belichick and the Patriots. They seem to figure that out. And they've had them used, used against them, too. I remember Vrabel did it to them. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was a playoff game or a regular season game where – uh, they were doing some things to, I think it was on a punt, right? They were false start, you know, um, trying to get, uh, just get some time off the clock there. And in the NFL, now I, I believe this, I don't know when it was outlawed, but, you know, Buddy Ryan used to use a, a tactic called the Polish goal line where he actually had it in, in, the, uh, in the playbook. I think he was with the Oilers at the time, and he would just put, 
three extra linebackers in the game have you know more guys in the game than they're allowed to have and same same kind of thing they were using it as a tactic to take time off the clock they were going to obviously stop that play with uh with all those guys in the game and go ahead and you know take the half the distance to the goal but eliminate an extra shot at scoring so it kind of goes along with with the same thing there yeah i mean if you break things down into how many plays are left in the game however you break that up you know whether you want to use four to six seconds but you know basically understanding that however it breaks down uh, whatever you're going to be comfortable with uh number wise four five or six to break these plays down how many plays can the the team actually run to go win the game and then what are you willing to do within the parameters to um to run that time i know one that became popular this year and i saw it come up a, a number of times was the straddle return I, I saw it on sundays i saw it saw it uh on saturdays i was even i'm i'm thinking i was at a browns game this year and now i'm trying to think who they played i think it was the uh the Ravens and the Browns executed that straddle return as well. So talk to us about the straddle return. And, and again, how do you, I guess, you know, showing guys is one thing, but you still want them to work. So how how do you work those things out on the field or make sure, Hey, you've got some reps at this. So you understand how to do it. Yeah, that one's hard to work. Uh, You got to just, we talk about it. We talk to our returners about it. We show the film. We understand the rule. Uh, We understand that if we're out of bounds and then field the football, um, that we're going to get the penalty. We have a special teams beer period where the kickoff returners are broken off and we're doing individual within the kickoff returning group uh, that um, I might take them and just walk them through that again, yeah. you know, just to make sure that they've gone through that process of doing it. But to get a kicker or a jugs machine or whatever to launch it and put put it in that position is something we we haven't even tried. No, but I think what you point out there is being able to walk through it and show them exactly what that means. Put put their bodies in those positions on the field of what you showed them on film, you know, again, just gets them gets it in their head and, and makes it a little bit more concrete to them that this is what I do if it happens. You're right. It doesn't come up a lot, but it's one of those situations you see every now and then that, that kicker gets that ball down the sideline and it's rolling around and you know you're thinking it's going to go into the end zone but it's not moving and and that's where you use the straddle return to be able to move that ball down the field oh i know and i see you know i know we did this i know we did this at ithaca you know i know our returner caught the ball and right tippy toed the sideline and stepped out of bounds at the one yard line and i know teams played have done that multiple times too and so if I'm seeing it multiple times, then, you know, there's certainly a bunch of times where returners are in position to put themselves in a place to do that, you know, put themselves in a straddle return position. You, you in your clinic, listed and went through a whole bunch of special team situations. We probably could do a whole podcast on that, but um, we mentioned the straddle return. What would be one or two other ones that are, are favorites of yours to teach because they certainly can have a big impact on the game? Yeah, one of the ones, you know, honestly, one I spend a lot of time on is uh, returners understanding uh, just basic rules. Uh, Like I mentioned before, a lot of games that I've been a part of have been affected by the kick returners or punt returners, not truly understanding the rules, not understanding momentum rules, not understanding 
if they can take a knee, not take a knee, stepping out of bounds at the one, fielding the ball when they shouldn't field it. So I spent a fair amount of time covering those uh, situations with Turner's and the team. And then, you know, making sure everyone just understands basic rules of when the ball is, you know, live, when you can pick it up, you know, when, if you muff it, can the other team fall on it? When is it their ball? Uh, when is it our ball? You know, you know, just, uh, I spent a lot of time doing that with the program and, uh, you know, with the kids to make sure that they understood exactly all those situations, because I've seen those come up a ton with players making really bad decisions on the field and, and making those bad decisions within the kicking game goes to just really not understanding the rules. Even if you cover it till you're blue in the face, you know, like you got to teach it in the meeting, you got to walk through it. And I do it with the whole program and, and all the players. As you've, you've been able to do this with your team, what have you really seen as the results uh, of spending this time on it? How much of a difference has it made for you? That's an interesting question. I think the program in my five years there, you know, really grew within their competitive intelligence. I do truly do believe that, you know, I do think, I mean, it doesn't mean our players didn't make bad decisions. You know, we made bad decisions and, and everything wasn't perfect, but um, the IQ of the team, I, I thought certainly improved their communication on the sideline and situations was, was a lot stronger. And, you know, I, I think our guys took a lot of uh, pride in, in understanding the game, knowing the rules. And, you know, it goes back to the, you know, I always like to quote the Pete Carrill book, you know, you know, as a basketball coach and, you know, I'm at Penn now and he was the Princeton basketball coach, but his book was a, you know, the smart picks from the strong. And so, you know, that's kind of how we start all those meetings, you know, and that's, uh, uh, I think, that, you know, the guys really kind of bought into that teaching process. I love it. And I see how that really can become part of a culture as you pay attention to details and the areas that you point out. I think it just puts an emphasis on, you know, we are a detail oriented program. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. You know, spent a lot of time teaching it, coaching it, um, but you got to be efficient with it. And, uh, you know, I think the ability to take our time over quarantine and pull all the video clips and put it all together and put it as a teachable presentation to share with your program, it just made it so much more efficient to finish up every single team meeting with a, with a chunk of that presentation, you know, within our team meetings. And then with your Friday walkthroughs and then with your Sunday or Monday team meetings, depending on when our day off was. We talked a lot about some of the, the technical and tactical things here that we do. And you certainly shared uh, the impact of the coaches you um, were able to learn from growing up as a player and as, as a coach. And when you look at everything you do now as a coach, what's the one thing you'd say really gives your players the winning edge? I just think I'm really fortunate to, to do what I get to do. I certainly love it. You know, I love the work. I do love coaching and I'm really just thankful to have the opportunity, but I've just been very fortunate to be around really good coaches, be around really good people and be around really good players. And I tell everybody I'm the, uh, I'm the beneficiary of everybody else, you know, I'm, you know, not a self-made man at all. And uh, I'm just, was at the right place, the right time. And I've learned from some great coaches and, and all I try to do is just, you know, I try to uphold the standards and expectations that they set me day in and out. And, you know, I wake up every day and I just try to do it to the best of my ability. And, you know, I'm, I'm not that charismatic. 
I would mean, if I watch these coaches, there's a lot of coaches who probably, you know, just work as hard, if not harder. And, you know, I'm just a product of being around great players and a product of being, you know, educated by, by some of the best is where I would put it. But, you know, I don't know if there's really anything that separates me from anybody else. Well, that's a, is a great answer anyway, coach. Definitely some, some of the things you've shared with us uh, came through in that answer. So what's, what would be the best way for our listeners to uh, get in touch with you and uh, connect with you? Yeah, I guess if anyone's interested, email's good. I, you know, I, uh, I'm pretty solid there. You know, social media is not bad. It just might take me a little bit longer. Um, I, I kind of get buried a little bit on Twitter, but eventually um, I will get back to you. If you do follow me, I'll try to follow you back and give access. You know, I think those are the two best ways, but yeah, whatever anyone needs, they're more than welcome to reach out. And my email's on the website, um, you know, the University of Pennsylvania football website. So um, it's pretty, pretty, pretty easy got to find in general. Yeah. And his Twitter handle for you guys is at Dan Swanstrom. Well, Coach, I really appreciate you taking the time. I appreciate you being a part of Lawrence First and Goal. I know that means a, a lot to all of the people that the Luce family and Lawrence First and Goal Foundation help. And uh, we're going to link the, uh, the clinic talk you had there into the show notes. And, guys, I highly recommend you getting this one and utilizing the examples that Coach pulls out and shows and, and Teach this stuff to your team because I do believe it'll make a difference. So, Coach, thank you again. Yeah, thank you for having me. And uh, I think also, you know, you you bringing it back to Coach Luce and um, having me on. I, I can tell you this: there's there's nothing I've ever done professionally that's gotten more response than this. So it's, uh, it's pretty neat for you know Coach Luce to ask me to do that and um, giving me a platform to speak and communicate to coaches. Pretty cool. Thank you again for listening to the Coaching Coordinator Podcast. Remember to check the show notes for some of the links of the things we talked about here, like the Lawrence First and Goal Talk, as well as our episode with Coach Rob Ash. Follow me on Twitter at Coach K. Grabowski and follow all we're doing at coachandcoordinator.com.